welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College. A community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello everyone, we are back again, it's GodPod, and uh, this time it's um, the old team, it's Jane, hello, and Michael, hello, and me Graham, so your old favourites are here. Not that old. Well. <laughs> Let's not deceive ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully they can't see us. We are a lot older than we were when GodPod started. Well, that's, that's true. true. How long has it been now? I think we started in 2006. Gosh. And it's... That's a long time ago. So we're coming up to our tenth anniversary and our hundredth Godpod. Yeah. So you, you, if you, if you want to hear the hundredth, the hundredth is going to be very special. We can tell you that in advance. So um, just wait around. It's not going to be there yet. We don't know how it's going to be special yet, or yeah. when it's going to be, or anything. <laughs> and we're also coming up to our um, our millionth listen listener or download. We've actually had over eight hundred thousand downloads, I think, now on um, on Godpod. So. Um, um, there are a lot of people out there who listen. So anyway, if you've been listening to GodPod for a long time, um, well done. Perseverance is a great virtue. Uh, if you're new to GodPod, then uh, I hope you find this a really helpful discussion. And um, welcome to the GodPod family. So today we are going to um, uh, deal with some of the questions that have come through from various listeners around the world. And um, it's always nice to get emails from people. And um, uh, if you uh, uh, want to email in, you can um, uh, listen to the uh, email address at the end of the podcast today, and it'll tell you where to email in questions. In other words, you've forgotten. <laughs> How do you tell? <laughs> <laughs> right, it's just trying to get people to listen to the end. That's oh, what yes, it is. Yes. They have to listen to the end. Very good. Than, yes, I don't want so, to make it too easy for people. <laughs> exactly. But it's very nice to get ones every now and again. We had one a little, little while ago that said, um, your God pod is one of the best things that's ever happened to my life. Keep up the blessed work. Isn't that nice? That is nice. We hope many nicer things happen to you soon, dear listener. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, it's very good. And um, so it's nice to hear things like that. But, uh, uh, well, we've got a few questions here. And we've got one from um, Tim, Tim Soong, who um, emails one directed at Mike, actually. Yes. He says, hello, Mike. Hello. I want to thank you for your participation in the God Pod and how you are always willing to dive into challenging questions. Yes, I can see a, a, a kind of... Where this is going. I can see where this is <laughs> going. A butt coming along here, can't you? <laughs> and then he says, I, I find you all very inspiring. It's kind of nice to know. Yes. Yeah, good. Anyway, it's a really good question here. And it says, um, reflecting on how often in previous God Pods we've looked at the question of free will. And uh, he... Um, um, addresses this question particularly to Mike, I guess, but thinking about how um, uh, how very often in our discussions we say things like, "Well, um, God can't do that because we have free will," uh, or as uh, sometimes said, "God doesn't always get his way because we have free will." And so Tim goes on to ask, "I've been thinking um, in the last few days that there may be a danger in saying God can't get his way because we have free will, simply on the grounds of omnipotence." 
Uh, I think he doesn't get his way because he simply chooses to let us work it out in our own time. So there's a question there about uh, how does that if that's what we say, and that's what something Mike you've said quite a few times, God doesn't always get his way because of sin. Sin happens, and therefore sin is not God's will, and therefore God doesn't always get his way. God's will doesn't always happen. How do you put that together with the omnipotence of God, God Almighty, that kind of language? Now, there's another question further along the line, but let's have a go at that one first. So um, omnipotence, free will, how does that fit together? I think the f- we often use the word omnipotence or um, God being almighty, talk of God as being almighty. Um, it's not actually, I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's not a biblical term. Uh, the phrase that we, God almighty that we use is actually a translation of God of hosts, uh, which is a much more uh, concrete and less abstract term than omnipotence or almightiness. And I think there's a danger in that when you use a word like omnipotence, you take a human concept of power and you multiply it as many times as you can think of and you project it onto God. And I think there's a real danger in that, um, that you take not only what is good about human potentiality and increase that and project it onto God, but you also take what is bad about the use and abuse of human power and project that onto God. Um, So we tend to admire somebody who's effective, somebody who gets their way, who gets things done. Uh, Sometimes, even if they trample over people to get there, uh, even if they kind of make people do things against their will, uh, we, we we, we, we admire that. And so we project it onto God. Whereas I don't think that, I think you also need, when you apply something to God, you also need to critique it. In fact, applying it to God does critique that whole concept and purges it of some of the, the human abuses uh, that are part of our thinking and our language about it. So I think that God is somebody who's not the kind of boss who insists on getting his way, that nobody gainsays him, that nobody can have any say in the matter, that he's the only one who gets heard and gets acted on and obeyed. He's somebody who lets us be, who lets us be what we are, who lets us choose, who lets us be free. And that way, our love is meaningful. Uh, If he made us love one another, then it wouldn't be love. If he made us love him, it wouldn't be love. It would be pre-programming. So that would be my first response, I think, that, that you've got to be careful when you use these abstract terms about God that we're not importing some quite fallen human constructs in the process. And then, of course, when you get um, uh, in the medieval period, people like Aquinas really trying to unpack what these words mean um, when applied to God. One of the things um, Aquinas wants to say is that uh, God's omnipotence means that under all circumstances, God is God. So nothing can act upon God in a way that makes God untrue to God. Nothing can make God's character change. Nothing can God make God lose his temper. Nothing can make God have an off day. Which God is, is not true of us. Which is not true of us, exactly. So we are not omnipotently able to be ourselves. We are constantly being forced out of out of true, um, do things that we regret, uh, are, are untrue to ourselves, are less than we're capable of being. God is always under all circumstances God. And we can't, whatever we do to God, we cannot make him stop loving us. We cannot make him stop being God. Um, and that is um, that's a very interesting uh, translation of the word omnipotence. It I think also link, links it quite strongly to the idea of freedom. Yeah. 
in the sense that God is perfectly free yeah. to be himself. Exactly. Um, in a way that we're not quite free to be ourselves. We are inhibited and damaged and um, flawed in all kinds of ways, which mean that we're not able to fully be the people we were intended to be, which actually then leads you into a, what is a Christian understanding of freedom, which is precisely freedom to be the person you were created to be, which is a kind of different understanding of freedom from our culture, for example. Um, but that idea of beginning from divine omnipotence understood as divine freedom gives you actually quite a, a fascinating and very different view of freedom than uh, we sometimes think of in our society where we think freedom is just freedom to do what I want. And probably freedom is often, that's the problem, because what we want is often not the best for us. So um, freedom and omnipotence in that regard are quite similar. This is a, a joke really worthy of Mike, but it, it comes from dieting circles, so Mike probably doesn't know it, um, which is that I have plenty of willpower, I just don't have any won't power. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and again, I think you know, we all know that sense of, of things that we absolutely long for, that we know are damaging to us. Um, and, and so that, that Like biscuits sense, and fudge. Those kind of things. Some of us know <laughs> to the fudge. Um, and, and so that we know we're, we're very often acting against our own best interests, which seems an extraordinary um, thing when we know that we're not doing ourselves any good. That, um, uh, and, and God is not like that. Well, yes, one might say, and there would be all sorts of caveats one would have to make about this, that God actually does sometimes act contrary to his own interests, but never contrary to ours. I mean, the, I'm thinking of the cross, um, that, that actually love is so constitutive of who he is that what he can't be shaken out of is what is good for us. But at the same time, that is an expression of God's inner being. Oh, and that's one and of the some caveats ways, to which I was referring. The cross is a... The incarnation, excuse me, creation, incarnation, cross are—they are events that that do reveal the very essence and being of God as as love. Yes. Um, they're not God out, acting out of character. No. They're they're actually God acting in character. So that you can say the most extraordinary things, can't you? God is absolutely free to be not God, to go out of God into creation. God is absolutely God, who is utter life, is so free that he can go into death. I mean, that you can. There's extraordinary sort of and contradictions. He's, he's free enough to create something which is not himself. Yeah. In other words, he's he's free to create a world which is not. God, and that's one of the distinctive Christian things that we say about creation, that it's not divine, it, 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 is a, it is a created thing. But you need a God who is free, powerful, in control of himself, lacking in ego, that doesn't have to dominate everything and say everything has to be me, to be able to be free enough, powerful enough to create something which is not God. And then, of course, that's what God longs to gift to us, is that kind of freedom, so that we are free, freely to love him, freely to give ourselves to each other, freely not, free not to be the massive egos um, bouncing around and wrecking things, free to be free like God is free to be utterly ourselves. Exactly, yeah, that freedom to be ourselves is precisely the gift of God because actually it's a divine thing, that freedom to be who you are. And 
that's why I, I slightly disagree with some of those theologians who say that God almost has to kind of withdraw from us in order to leave us free. Whereas I actually think that it is precisely his presence that makes us free. Uh, it doesn't encringe upon us. This is Rowan Williams's thing again about um, how God is, does not compete with us for space. Uh, it's not that he has to withdraw so as to give us space. It is his presence that creates that space for us to be fully ourselves. Yeah, and that freedom... Actually, in some ways, it's, it's not somehow us being independent of God. It's actually growing into a likeness of God. Because actually, the, you know, what, what to be fully human is to share the same characteristics that God has. It's to be full of love and joy and peace and mercy and kindness and all of those things. In other words, it's to be who we were made to be, to be like God. And therefore, the freedom, he, the freedom to be ourselves is precisely the freedom to be like God, which is what you see in Jesus Christ the perfectly free human being who is also fully divine at the same time. And so when we are, um, uh, that, that um, wonderful description that St. Paul has is I, 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 I long to do one thing and I find myself doing another, uh, we are actually reflecting the fact that, that we have um, sacrificed our own freedom, um, our own freedom to be what we long to be. We have um, wrecked it in all kinds of ways. Well, it leads on to the second half of um, Tim's question, which is um, uh, talking about free will and uh, whether we have free will. There is this perspective in Christian faith that in some ways our free will, we have forfeited that free will through sin. In other words, our free will is really only found in Christ and our restored humanity, as he puts it. But actually, this is a very strongly Augustinian point that Augustine and all those in his tradition would make, which is that actually we had free will originally. Free will was part of the gift of God to humanity, but we forfeited that free will when Adam sinned. And that is now kind of, you know, the, the, the ripples of that reach us today. And because we are sinful people, we've actually lost our free will. Is that right? How do we understand that in relationship to this question of the gift of free will to us? Entirely right that, that, that sin enslaves. Um, that the more you do something wrong, the more you get into destructive habits and patterns of behaving towards oneself and others, um, the more one gets drawn into that, the more difficult it is not to do that, the more habit becomes part of who one is, uh, and therefore the less and less free one, I think, experiences oneself as being. So I think that is exactly right. Um, how does that relate to the free will that I've claimed and we've all of us kind of claimed in some sense that human beings have. Well, I think the important thing here is, is a high doctrine of the spirit, that the spirit is the one who is available to us to draw upon, to give us back that freedom which we've lost. Uh, and the spirit's always available. The question is whether we avail ourselves of that. Uh, the spirit, in a sense counterbalances the downward pull of our own fallen nature, our own um, habits, hard, long-formed habits, uh, and, and offers us a counter, counterbalance to that that enables us to have that freedom which we have ourselves forfeited.
And then the Christian disciplines um, are actually retraining us in the habits of freedom, in the power of the Spirit. So you know, we learn um, what is good for for us. We learn how to to pray, how to be in community, how to deny ourselves things that are actually damaging, um, and and um, and gradually retrain our freedom. You might say, rediscover our freedom. I I I, I love the the sort of um, the the picture of the. Um, Israelites wandering in the wilderness complaining that they can't be slaves anymore um, because you know in Egypt they didn't have to think what they were going to do they were told what they had to do they didn't have to think where the next meal was coming from the next meal was provided so it's, it seems to me it's quite a good picture of Christian life you have to actually learn how to be free if you've been a slave um, you have to rediscover um, the freedom and responsibility of living in the spirit um, and becoming who you are and that, and that is I mean, it was Augustine's understanding of the way God works, isn't it? I mean, he, he called it grace, but you know, grace gradually frees us from from that power that enslaves us. In other words, that pressure that we feel to do the very thing that damages us and harms us, as you were saying, Jane. And what what grace does is it it frees us from that. Not not so much by, um, if you like, you know, reducing the. The, the, the attraction of these things, but by placing before us something even more attractive, which is this vision of Christ, this vision of God's goodness. And the more we look at God's goodness, the more we, we actually don't want to do the things that damage us, the more we want to do the very things that that that, that enable us to be what we were in, in, in created to be. What the Puritans used to call the displacement of the affections, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean it, um, so thank you, Tim, for that really interesting question. Um, stimulated some quite fascinating thoughts there I thought you never quite know where Godpod discussions are going to go do you really no <laughs> I mean, sometimes they're bad and other times they're worse yeah <laughs> maybe good to let you in on a little bit of a secret Godpod listeners which is that so we, we, we never prepare for these things I think I they could probably tell it's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible uh, shock to you. <laughs> <laughs> well it's well, a, number one it's certainly not scripted but B because um because actually we do find sometimes the sort of spontaneity of just discussion and conversation actually generates thoughts which if you've planned it all very carefully beforehand doesn't work terribly well in fact there was one instance <clears throat> where somebody forgot to put the push the right button and we spent three quarters of an hour talking and it wasn't recorded so we then redid the discussion um, and recorded it and it just went a bit flat and yep, we'll leave you well. to decide which of the 80 <laughs> plus uh, god pods it was no it was not every single one <laughs> <laughs> so it's um yeah we never quite know what's going to come out in a god pod and that's that's the really good thing about your questions because they often stimulate thought and conversation and why theology is actually is a corporate thing it's not something you just do on your own you do it with people and with friends and with the church because actually sometimes we correct each other we're always correcting mike of course wrongly <laughs> but it's actually by talking together you can discover more than you can discover on your own and and, and one experiences that doing it that, that jane will ch even jane will chip in with something of course <laughs> and, and and that prompts another that's right which leads us on to another question, which is kind of related to the previous one, which is to do with free will and omnipotence. And it's a question that comes in from um, uh, Ian Wilson, who says, I have a question for the team that's bothered me for a long time. Uh, if the way to salvation is narrow and few find it, how can Christ be said to have won the victory? It always seems rather hollow to me, given that most people in my life reject Christ. 
So uh, there's the question. If um, if we if Jesus says that that you know the way to life is narrow, a few people will find it. Um, relatively few people. And there are many people in the world who are not Christians. Um, in what sense can we say that Christ has won the victory if actually very few people? Uh, and it may be that in whatever culture you're listening to this from, you may look around and think, well, there are many people who are not believers in Christ. Um, uh, so and I guess it relates to the free will omnipotence question uh, as well. So in what sense can we still say that Christ has won the victory if actually a large number of the human race, perhaps most, uh, reject him? I suppose I'd like to start by saying I don't think any of us has found it for ourselves. Uh, and um, uh, and that's quite an important thing to say is we don't set off to find our own salvation and make our own way there. Um, the way is made for us by Jesus Christ. So um, it, salvation is gift, isn't it? It's not something that um, that we can find our own way to. Um, and uh, I, I mean, that's obviously not what Jesus is talking about in that context, um, though it's not unrelated to what Jesus is talking about, this, this, um, um, this very strong sense that we all have that actually we have to do it ourselves. And if we haven't done it ourselves, it won't, it won't be good enough. Um, whereas actually what the Gospels tell us is that Christ has won the victory because he does it for us. Um, we don't have to find our own way anymore. And and at least there is a road. That that's the victory in a sense that there is a road where there wasn't before. Where there wasn't before, uh, and that that's quite a significant thing. I think. I think one has to be slightly careful in the the few and the many language, um, which for us many means large numbers and few means small numbers there is in, in the semitic languages which were reflected in in the greek of the new testament um a, a more kind of set and subset use of the few and the many um which so i don't think we should get het up on exact proportions uh, whether it's a large proportion or a small proportion um these are these are more about the, the subset and, uh, and, and set I think um, that doesn't solve the problem it doesn't um, answer anything but I think it stops us getting fixated on on the issue of proportions which is not the point of the parable and you always got to be careful with parables uh, that you get the point and not a whole lot of kind of things that aren't the main point and the other thing it seems to me that Jesus doesn't encourage us to do particularly is to speculate on who is saved and how many are saved? Um, there are a number of places in the, the scriptures um, where he emphasises. It seems to me how you know how we would get it wrong if if we if if it was left to us to judge, we would get it entirely wrong. You know, people who go to Jesus and say, "Lord, Lord, you have done all these things in your name," and he says, "Depart from me, I never knew you." Uh, and those who um, you know give a cup of water to the to the poor, and but apparently didn't know Jesus and who are welcomed into his presence. In other words, it's saying, well, actually, you're not capable of judging. God's judge, judgment is quite different uh, from ours. And therefore, um, I think like you, Mike, I'm a bit cautious of language that's saying that there are, you know, very few people who get saved. Sometimes that means that the people who agree with me. Um, and that is, a, I find, a very small number. <laughs> <laughs> Heaven help us if that's the case. Um, and I suppose, it, again, going back to our, our previous discussion, um, 
does God get his way? And, and I suppose I, I, I do want to say back to our thinking about omnipotence, that God, I think God does get his way in the end. Um, in that uh, there are all kinds of things, and I think I, this is your point, Mike, that there are things that happen within the world which are not things that God desires to happen. They're not things that God wants in the fullest sense of the word. But in the end, we know that Christ will win the victory. We have the kind of the, the, the foretaste of that in the resurrection. So it's the, the end is not in doubt. It's not that we think, oh gosh, you know, who's going to win at the end of the day? Is it, is it God or is it the forces of, uh, of, uh, of evil and destruction? No, we know life and love do win in the end. Now, what, what that means in terms of salvation is a whole other question. Um, and clearly you can go in one direction to say that, you know, well, God is fixed, you know, some to be saved and some to be not saved. Uh, you can go in another direction, that God has fixed that everyone will be saved. Um, not sure I want to go in either of those two directions. Um, but I still want to hold on to this 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 idea that God, God God does get his way in the end, even if I can't tell exactly what that will look like and what his final resolution will be. And Paul, I mean, one of the ways Paul talks about it is he says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So um, that there, God has made this way to be with us if we will um, walk with with him then the love of God is sure and certain and it isn't about us again trying to find the path it's it's simply walking with Jesus in the way that Jesus has made and um, and yes I mean I, I think that that distinction between um, the church that we think is the church and the church that God sees um, is, is a really important one we um, are constantly trying to put boundaries around things uh, and have to keep remembering that they may not be the right boundaries and um, if you need a more vivid uh, um, way of knowing that we get things wrong we only have to look at the cross we did that we decided Jesus was not um, (laughs) uh, was not speaking truthfully about God us human beings and crucified him and look we got it horribly wrong so I mean I think that is part of what's going on here is 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 the, the trusting in the in the victory of Jesus who is the one who overcomes we don't have to um, we we just have to go with Jesus and I think there's also we need to recognise there's a provisionality about how people self-identify they may say I reject all that um, but as you pointed out Graham in the parable of the sheep and the goats suggests there'll be some surprises on, on that day when do we see you naked and clothe you when do we see you um hungry and feed you and that's a surprise to them that they are seen as being people who've welcomed Christ Um, they might have thought no I've rejected him but there's something there uh, that is beyond even their knowledge of themselves and I, I think so often the church has made such a mess of presenting Christ to people that in some cases, they'd be right to reject that caricature of who he actually is. And when faced with the actual person of Jesus, they might say, well, if that's what you've been talking about, then that's a very different matter. And that I love, that I've been longing for, like the character in The Last Battle uh, by C.S. Lewis. Um, So I think we've got to be careful, not, we've obviously got to respect how people self-identify, but not it's not the last word. Yeah. And I love that line in the hymn that 
says that there is a wideness in God's mercy um, that is probably wider than my understandings of mercy or the way I would divide people up if it was down to me. Um, and uh, and that, that's not an indiscriminate nature of God's mercy. It's not that God says, oh, it's all right, you know, it doesn't matter what you've done, it's fine. You know, it's not that he's indiscriminate, that we are talking about a God who judges, but there is a wideness in it is his his mercy that fits together with his with his judgment. I mean, I was I was intrigued by Karl Barth, of course, who, when he got onto this question of you know who is saved in the end, you know, he wanted to say that you know that, that ultimately the saved one, the the chosen one, is Christ, and and he is the object of God's election. There's not some sort of you know secret decree of God where he chooses to damn some and save others. No, save others. No, Christ is God's elect one. He's the chosen one, and in Christ, humanity is chosen. And God's word to humanity is yes and not not no. And then people went on to ask this question: Does that does that mean you think that everyone's going to be saved? And he would he would never quite answer that question. He would sort of he actually would say, "No, I'm not a universalist in that sense of the word," but he would never allow himself to be tied down. It's almost as if he wanted to say, "Well, actually, you know, Christians can kind of hope that as many people as possible are saved, but we leave that in the hands of God." In fact, he used the phrase, "I'm not not a universalist," didn't yeah. he? Um, and I think in a sense that is something that we are free indeed mandated to want and to work for and to pray for it's in the end that question becomes a a challenge and and a mission and a mandate doesn't it but at the same time it seems to me that that doctrine of freedom that we've talked about and our in a sense the freedom that god gives us to to in a sense choose slavery um does still leave the, the possibility that we might actually turn away from god finally and turn to the nothingness which is the only other alternative to god Bart also said if god can forgive me he can forgive anybody and i think that's again a properly humble place from which to to view this question um, and you actually see what God the work that God has had to do in those of us who do think that we're Christians um, and the work still left to be done you realize this you know God God has resources um, that are just beyond our imagining and we shouldn't judge where people are in their journey with God good well one more question which again follows on from what we just talked about and we've talked about this um uh, idea of God's judgment and God's mercy, and and uh, this question is about mercy. It's actually from um, from Peter McDonald in the USA, whose um, uh, foundation has very kindly sponsored some of our God Pods recently, and um, he has a question about the mercy of Christ. He says the mercy the term mercy is often used, uh, but not often explained. Um, how should I think and study mercy, both in the Bible and other works? Uh, are there parts of our human nature, and especially today's culture, that make mercy a different, difficult subject to address? Uh, so um, uh, how do we keep mercy at the heart of our understanding of God? It's a term that's used quite often in the scriptures, you know, merciful God. Um, so uh, what are your reflections on that term, um, Mercy. I think it's a hugely important term because it 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 um, I mean the the some of the, the parables that Jesus tells, like for example, that the servant who is forgiven a huge debt, 
um, and then uh, um, uh, given back his life because the debt was so huge that there was no way he was ever going to be able to repay it and then goes straight out and demands um, a very small amount of money from somebody who owed it to him um, and and that's sort of a picture of um, of the mercy of God that is meant to make us then merciful we're meant to live out of that sense that that um, we have been given things beyond anything that we could ever earn or deserve um, and that is then going to become our character we're going to become the people who pass that on and um, and so that the mercy of God is not just um, wiping our slates clean it's it's giving us um, a, a new place from which to start a new a new way of being um, so I mean if, if I, I think um, Peter goes on to talk about the what happened to St Paul when when Saul becomes Paul he's not just forgiven for um, for what he used to do to Christians um, out of that um, bitterness and and um, destructiveness comes this person who then transforms Christianity, passes it on. So mercy is not just, as I say, a negative thing. It's, it's a positively creative thing that enables a new way of being. And it's interesting to look at the negative that it is the opposite of, because uh, the opposite of, of mercy is a kind of harshness and a hardness and a littleness and a, uh, a rigidity. Um, that is very unfertile, very hard, and very cold. Uh, and the mercy of God is the opposite of all, of all that. Again, as Graham was saying earlier, not kind of softness, not a kind of turning a blind eye to. Um, in fact, very much not turning a blind eye to the ways in which we hurt others, um, but one which... Uh, has a, a lifefulness towards us and a love towards us and a, um, a, a, a prepared to give in give to who we are. I think. Yeah, because I, I guess that's right. The 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 kind of counterpoint to mercy is justice, and I guess justice, is in a sense, is getting what we deserve, and and mercy is getting what we don't deserve. And that's where the talk of a merciful God is that of a God who is, who actually is a God of grace, who gives us what we precisely don't deserve. And therefore, it's a, it's a wonderful picture of God and how um, that plays out. At the same time, though, I'm conscious that um, I'm not sure it's the final thing we say about God. It's, it's interesting that, you know, in, in Islam, for example, um, merciful is almost the most important thing you say about God Allah the merciful it's almost the most important thing you say um, and that is if you like the good news of Islam that 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 that, that, um, that Allah is is merciful but it seems to me that that posits a God who is sort of fundamentally operates in this legal framework he is ultimately finally a judge who then is merciful despite his demands of justice and whereas it seems to be, a, a, you know, the ultimate thing we want to say about God in Christian faith is that He is love. Now, it's not that love is somehow different from mercy or opposite to it, but it seems to be mercy is an expression of love, not the other way around. And therefore, the final thing we want to say about God in Christian faith is that He is love, which is again something that Islam doesn't say in a, in the fullness of what it 
statements as you don't find that statement in the in the Quran that God is God is love you find a lot about Allah is merciful but you don't find that statement of God is love because I think actually the Christian understanding of God doesn't see him primarily as a judge who then happens to be merciful on his creatures but actually his mercy is an expression of this fundamental character of God as as love that reaches out um, uh, and so the, if you like the legal categories are again an expression of God's love the law is an expression of God's love not somehow the, the, the primary identity of God as a judge well I think mercy is a is primarily a one-way uh, process is a one-way flow from God to ask he is merciful to us that we then have to flow it on to others but there's nothing going back um, whereas love is a two-way thing love invites our response uh, and that I suspect the difference therefore between uh, Islam's focus on uh, mercy and Christianity's focus on love is due to the fact that it has not just a one-way view of God. There's a Trinitarian concept here that makes love intrinsic to who God is uh, and it's not just a being who relates to us. Yep, because actually when you think of the life of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity are not are they merciful to each other? I'm not sure that's quite a, a word you'd use but they are loving to each other and that's why love is central to Christian faith and mercy is, a, is, a, is, a, is an expression of that but not the core thing we'd say. But uh, all of God's characteristics are creative and life-giving, aren't they? So God's mercy to us enables us to start an, um, with a, a new form. So, I mean, so for example, that glorious resurrection encounter between Peter and Jesus. Um, Peter, uh, Jesus is merciful to Peter, and so Peter is given back his life, with which he's then able to. Um, to to do something glorious, so that sense that yes, that it's not just a um, a one way street, um, because it calls out of us our our response of love, which recreates us. Fascinating. Well, that's been a really interesting Godpod. Don't know about you, I've quite enjoyed it. So have I. Good. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jade has deigned to <laughs> be present and give us some of her wisdom. <laughs> Pearls before swine. <laughs> we know who the swine are, don't we? <laughs> yes, let's not worry about that. Exactly. So um, uh, thank you for listening. It's been uh, very good to be with you for this Godpod. So it's um, goodbye from me, Graham. And from me, Michael. And from me, Jane. And we will see you again for the next one before too long. That was Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.